Welcome to Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast. We are Scott and Maureen Proctor, and we are delighted to be with you again this week to discuss Jeremiah chapters 30 through 33, chapter 36, and Lamentations 1 and 3 in a lesson entitled, I Will Turn Their Mourning Into Joy. And we're thrilled to be in your homes and in your hearts this week. And today we have with us Patrick Dane, who we love talking about the scriptures with. He is an institute teacher at Logan, and he is a very popular Education Week speaker. He guides tours, but mostly his study and his interest has also been in the ancient world. So he's a good one to have with us as we're talking about this ancient and very important event. Now, last week as we talked about Jeremiah, we were talking about part of his mission, which was to tell Jerusalem what was going to happen because of their wickedness. And he was called to root out and pull down. But this week, these chapters we're talking about are more of a consolation. He is going to build and to plant. So Patrick, tell us a little bit about what that means. Yeah. And thank you for having me. I very much appreciate being here with you. Yes. This this view of uh, Jeremiah 1 verse 10, very specifically, where the Lord, at least in the King James Version, says, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy. But then there's also, uh, and to throw down, but to build and to plant. And you see this, this twofold mission that, that something has to go so that something better uh, can grow in its place. And this is an image that I, I, I just see everywhere in the scriptures. You see in the life of our Lord where, where we must lose something uh, ourselves to find ourselves, or uh, you find this in um, King Benjamin, where King Benjamin says we must choose to put off the natural man uh, and to become a the saint through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Where as a child, and then you have Paul the Apostle saying in Galatians three that once we put off the natural man, we must put on Christ. So it's it's not enough to put off something that is that is wrong. We must put on something that is that is higher and holier. Uh, that being very specifically, as we see in Jeremiah, this, this wonderful passage of restoration. It's not just uh, going back to where we were before and where we're following the law of the Lord, but but that rather that the law of the Lord is is ingrained in our inward parts. And what does that mean? What does it look like to have God's uh, law uh, working within us? And I, so I think that's a it's a beautiful passage that we're dealing with today in restoration. They've the children of Judah, the southern kingdom, has already is going through this conflagration of Babylon destroying and and uh, really being the agent of God uh, bringing about um, his judgment. But his Jeremiah is quick to point out that he is slow to anger, but he is a God of justice. And I re- should rather say, and he is a God of justice, and he is a God of mercy to bring about restoration and renewal. And, and that's what these passages are dealing with in Jeremiah, very specifically, 30 through 33, wedged inside these uh, this narrative that Baruch, uh, his scribe, gives us were the prophecies of doom in, in the first 24 chapters. So it's, it's a beautiful passage of restoration we're dealing with today. I think, Patrick, at that, we should jump right into Jeremiah 31 uh, towards the end of that chapter, because I, I love what you were saying, and I, I want to have our listeners hear that in uh, probably starting in verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. So he talks about this sacred marriage between him and his people. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And we're in verse 33 of uh, Jeremiah 31. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And I, I just love that concept of the Lord putting this in our inward parts. And that word, it, it, you were talking before we started about the uh, all the references this has to other parts of the scriptures as well, this writing it into the inward parts of our being. Yeah, I, I think pro- probably for me, there's an obvious one, which would be 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In fact, really, you could look at the whole passage of 2 Corinthians 3 to see this incredible commentary that we're dealing with, where Paul the Apostle says to the members of the church living in Corinth, he says, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. And you think of the image of Baruch, who's writing down the writings and the words of Jeremiah, his poetry and his prophecies and things, and and how the leaders of Jerusalem are destroying that and burning them. And Baruch has to write another one. And Jeremiah adds to the, to the word of the Lord. But, but instead, Paul talks about a time where where the the writings of the Lord are not on scrolls, They're, it's written on hearts. And then he says in verse 3, this is Paul the Apostle. So 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3, For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in the fleshy tables of the heart, uh, where this promise of renewal and restoration is not going to be on the outside, it's going to be on the inside. And and um, President Ezra Taft Benson, uh, he shared a, a quote that my wife loves, I've loved, it's blessed my life immensely, where it illustrates the, the, the contrast of of the leaders of the, uh, of the Jews at the time who were emphasizing outward things to the expense of the inward things. And President Benson talks about, mentions this famous statement where he says, the Lord, quote, the Lord, works from the inside out, where the world works from the outside in. The world would take people out of the slums, but Christ takes the slums out of people, and then they take themselves out of the slums. The world would mold men by changing their environment. Christ changes men who then change their environment. See, it's it's written on our souls on the inside of us. And I and I I do believe that the best example, I mean, where do you find the prototype of of one or or to use a better word, an archetype? of one who actually has the law written in their flesh and what that means, what that looks like. And, and I think John, uh, the apostle John demonstrates this at the very beginning of his, his gospel, where he says, in the beginning was the word. There's that word that's outside somewhere. It's abstract. It's, it's in heaven uh, trying to come down and trying to be part of us. And then John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. But then he says, the word became flesh and was, in verse 14, he says, and dwelt among us or was tabernacled among us. There's images of temple right there. Is, is he takes up his residence among us as the tabernacle of God. The law that's written and expressed in flesh, Jesus Christ is the express image of the Father. And if you were to take the law, all 613 laws of the law of Moses and what Jesus does with that and pulls it down into two, to love God and to, lo- to love your neighbor. And you were to incarnate that or to enflesh that or to tabernacle that, what would it look like 
to have someone uh, that has incarnated all these things. And in John's contention, it is it is Jesus. Jesus is the one that has incarnated all that. And he's the best example of what that looks like to have God's law expressed in flesh among us. And so Jeremiah is speaking of a time then in the last days in verse 33 of Jeremiah 31, talks about this bridegroom, this bride imagery and how, how Zion is the bride of Christ. But then in verse 33, you've already referred to us, Scott, where the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the last days, the latter days, I will put my law in their inward parts. And he, and he uses this bridegroom, this marriage example, this marriage imagery again. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. This harkens back to Hosea the prophet with Hosea being this type of Christ and Gomer being this type of the house of Israel who's prostituted themselves to other gods. But but the loving kindness of Hosea brings her back and, and through redemption, she comes back in and and you see the purchase price and, and how he woos her and brings her back. And, and in the last days, that's what God is doing to us, is, is bringing us back through his loving kindness. Maybe one more thing I can see here, and I hate to, to overstay my welcome on this, but, but I see this in the, the Doctrine and Covenants as well. The, very, the first foray into the Doctrine and Covenants, Doctrine and Covenants section one, where the Lord demonstrates, in fact, you can see section one of the Doctrine and Covenants as as a summary of the entire book of Jeremiah, this preface to the Doctrine and Covenants, where it begins with the problems, he deals, and then he deals with the solution. He goes back to the problems if you don't follow the solution. But, but the Lord even references Babylon and these these problems with Jeremiah in section one, where he says they have. This is verse sixteen of or fifteen of section one. They have strayed from my ordinances. They've broken my everlasting covenant. But here's a problem with the house of Israel in the days of Jeremiah. And here's the problem today. It's this exact same problem and the exact same solution. Verse 16, they seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way after the image of his own God, whose image is in the likeness of the world and whose substance is that of an idol, which waxeth old and shall perish in Babylon. See, there's Babylon is coming, even Babylon the great, which shall fall. And so the Lord is picking up on the exact historical precedences in Jeremiah of Babylon coming. And, and we, when we express our own image and not being the image of God, we promote our name and not God's name. We fall after our, the images of the false gods, and the greatest false god there is is the image we see in the mirror. And that was the problem with Jeremiah's time, and that's the problem with, with the modern day. And so the solution in the Doctrine and Covenants is, verse 17, I, I, the Lord, knowing the calamity which had come upon the inhabitants of the earth, called upon my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., he he gives us prophets and the apostles to point us to the one uh, who is healing, to the one who is light, to call us back to uh, to remember that covenant we've made. Well, we also see this in the Sermon on the Mount, where the Lord says he doesn't want any more of their burnt offerings. Instead, he wants the offering of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And I think that is part of the way we do begin to have that written in the fleshy tablets of our heart is that our heart is broken. And, but I, but I'm thinking as you're talking, what's the practical solution for us as Latter-day Saints to go from just obeying the law, which is outside of us to having it written in the fleshy tablets of our hearts. That's a process. And we all want to know how to go through that process and how to move to a higher place. And I think that's worth talking about the process for, for just a moment. I know in my life, part of that process has been 
to have my heart broken by other things. <laughs> I have my heart broken by not being able to solve the problems that lie before me alone. I come to find out that I am small and not as smart as I thought I was and not so strong. And I really, really, really need the Lord. And that's when he begins to, to come inside of me and I, and I take those covenants and those commandments in a whole different way. But what is the process? Do we, I'd like to hear from everybody here that of moving from having it outside of us to having it inside of us. I think this truly is a process, but I think the, the biggest realization for me is kind of what you were just saying, Maureen. And of course we think the same on almost everything, but I think that we get to the point in our lives, sometimes early on, sometimes later on, but we get to the point in our lives when the burdens that we carry are just too much. And we, we have to let the Lord intervene in our hearts and intervene in our, in our whole lives and give our burdens to him. And we can't go any further. It's, and that's the way life is designed. We are designed to come to know that we absolutely cannot survive without the atonement of Jesus Christ. And so the burdens that are placed upon our backs, the uh, sins that we have committed, the problems that we face, the challenges that we face on a daily basis sometimes, uh, they become so great that we are really, and hopefully we're not just forced to turn to the Lord. Hopefully we say the Lord is there and we're so grateful He is and we turn to Him all the time. But sometimes all these things bring us to the point where we just must turn to him and and he does intervene and and I think when he lifts those burdens from us, we see how powerful he is and how much we want to become like him, and then we want to do the same thing for others. We want to lift the burdens off of others and and I think that's by and by how we become more like him. I love the verses in. Jeremiah 29, verses 11 through 14. These are some of my very, very favorite scriptures. And they read, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. So first of all, we understand that the Lord is thinking about peace toward us, love toward us. He's not someone distant or uncaring. He loves us. And then, so then he says, then shall ye call upon me and ye shall go and pray unto me and I will hearken unto you. Isn't that wonderful? You shall seek me and find me and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart and I will be found of you, saith the Lord. I love this promise. I will be found. I am right here. All you have to do is seek for me with all your heart. And I think the challenge for us is, is to give all our heart to that search because we're very caught up in other things. But he promises that if we, if we search for him with all our hearts, he's there. He will be found of us. I think that's very moving and very beautiful. And when we find him, then, of course, he is certainly written in our hearts. Maybe I can throw something on that. And, and, and Maureen, that was beautiful. I mean, that passage from Jeremiah 29 is, is, now, can, is now marked in my scriptures. Thank you. I very much appreciate that. I, when you ask the question, okay, how do, we, how do we bring the law into our inward parts and have it written on our hearts? And I, 
I, I constantly am thinking of President Russell M. Nelson's uh, mandate to get on and stay on the covenant path. And then that naturally begs the question, okay, what does that look like? What does that mean to get on and to stay on the covenant path? And and, and I think it, it's very much related to what Jeremiah is, is dealing with. In fact, I think Jeremiah is speaking about that very thing, which is this. If you consider our baptismal covenant and what that looks like, uh, I'm thinking specifically Doctrine and Covenants 20, uh, verse 37, where there's eight things that, I, that I, I, I'm committing to, to, to give myself to him. Uh, and, and the concept of eight is not lost here. Eight, this symbolic number of renewal, resurrection, rebirth, rejuvenation, regeneration. That's what eight is in the Old Testament. Um, and you look at what he says here in baptism in verse 37 of section 20. He says, all those who, number one, humble themselves before God, two, desire to be baptized, come forth with three broken hearts and four, contrite spirit. That's what you were saying, Maureen. And five, witness before the church they have truly repented of all their sins. And six, and the sixth thing is willing to take upon them uh, the name of Jesus Christ. And seven and eight, having determination to serve him to the end and truly manifest by the works. And I think number six is key here. When we take upon ourselves his name, it's, it's what Paul the Apostle said in Romans 6, that baptism is not, and I may not want to share this with little seven-year-olds, this part, but where Paul the Apostle speaks of baptism is an execution. It's, it's, a, it's a death. It's a, it's a crucifixion where, where we're choosing to crucify the old man of sin, to put off the natural man, to use King Benjamin again, to be born again, to become something new. And, and that process requires that I completely give myself over to something that's greater than myself, namely the name of Jesus Christ putting aside my name and taking upon myself the name of Jesus Christ, that that becomes my name. And how this relates to Jeremiah is very specific. You, you see throughout the writings of Jeremiah, he is the bridegroom, Israel is his bride. And the idea of a covenant, and you hear this a lot, that yeah, covenants are two-way promises, but that's very mercenary. That's very merchant-centered. And and I love how Jeremiah deals with the idea of a covenant or power, especially Joseph Smith, that while covenants are two-way promises, yes, but these gospel covenants are such that the nature of the promises are designed to bring the two separate parties to become one flesh so that they are one. And when I'm always constantly advocating my will at the expense of God's, we, we are not one in a marriage, in this covenantal marriage, that something new must be created when the, when the bridegroom and the bride come together. In fact, Alma calls it a new creature. Paul says that a new creature is born where where the flesh is the same, where where the bridegroom and the bride have become one with this, with this new creation that, is, that has been created. And, and I think that's what, so get on and stay on the covenant path. And what does that look like? To exercise faith in him, repent, honor that covenant so that the Holy Ghost can bring about change within my soul as I magnify his will in his name and not my own. That made me think, Patrick, as you were talking about what President Nelson said just recently, he said, every man and every woman who participates in priesthood ordinances, we're talking here about baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost, and who makes and keeps covenants with God has direct access to the power of God. We take the Lord's name upon ourselves as individuals. We also take his name upon us as a people being passionate about using the correct name of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints 
is a vital way that we as a people take his name upon us. And I think that's an exciting part of this as well as we're talking about putting this in the inward parts of our being. I think it's interesting that we find some resistance in our soul to not walk after our own way. And walking after our own own way sounds quite inviting because I like what I like. I like my will, right? Um, And to turn it over to the Lord and to trust him is to be invited to live in a whole different way and a whole different level of joy and peace and love. But we don't know that when we're when we're about to begin to give up ourselves, to let part of ourselves die, the selfish part, the part that would seek revenge, the part that um, worships the God in the mirror. And it's such a wonderful act of love and trust when we say, okay, dear Heavenly Father, I really don't want to be like this forever. I, I've done the best I can working hard, and it just is not sufficient. I do have to give up parts of myself, even some of my favorite parts, because after all, our weaknesses and sins are sometimes our favorite parts. I'm, I'm willing to do that to find this, this joy. You know, I love the talk that President Boyd K. Packer gave years ago in conference called The Brilliant Morning of Forgiveness. And he's talking about the Donner Party. I'm just going to read a little bit of it. He says, In April of 1847, Brigham Young led the first company of pioneers out of winter quarters. At that time, 1,600 miles to the west, the pathetic survivors of the Donner Party straggled down the slopes of the Sierra Nevada mountains into the Sacramento Valley. They had spent the ferocious winter trapped in the snowdrifts below the summit. They only survived the days and weeks and months of starvation and indescribable suffering that they did is almost beyond belief. Among them was a 15-year-old John Breen. On the night of April 24th, he walked into Johnson's ranch. Years later, John wrote, It was long after dark when we got to Johnson's ranch. So the first time I saw it, it was early in the morning. The weather was fine. The ground was covered with green grass. The birds were singing from the tops of the trees. And the journey was over. I could scarcely believe that I was alive. The scene that I saw that morning seems to be photographed on my mind. Most of the incidents are gone from memory. All those things that happened before in the snowdrifts and the cold, etc. But I can always see the camp near the Johnson's Ranch. And President Packer responded by saying, At first I was very puzzled by his statement that most of the incidents are gone from memory. How could long months of incredible suffering and sorrow ever be gone from his mind? How could that brutal, dark winter be replaced with one brilliant morning? On further reflection, I decided it was not puzzling at all. I have seen something similar happen to people I have known. I have seen some who have spent a long winter of guilt and spiritual starvation emerge into the morning of forgiveness. And I I love that because what will look hard or maybe impossible as we seek the Lord and we want to find him, it does mean that we give give up some things. And yet though they are the very things that are causing us misery right now and and when we have that bright morning, that brilliant morning of forgiveness, when we are one with the Lord, I think those things that caused us so much pain will will just drift away in our mind. I think it will be as if we've always been with the Lord and as if we've always had that brilliant morning. And 
And, you know, that is, of course, what it begins to feel like as we begin to put his word into our the fleshy tablets of our of our heart. There is just something that replaces our misery and frustration and worries and self-doubt um, with his love. That's beautiful, Maureen. Appreciate that. I was thinking about in chapter 31, Patrick, and maybe you have a comment about this, where it says that Ephraim is declared as the one who has the birthright as the firstborn. Now, Ephraim is obviously one of the two sons of Joseph, and Joseph is the one who was sold into Egypt, and Joseph was the firstborn of of Rachel and uh, Jacob. But I'm wondering what kind of responsibilities come with being the firstborn, because so many of our listeners are of the tribe of Ephraim. And by the way, you dear listeners, whenever we go to Egypt, which is pretty much every year, um, we always talk about our tribe there. We And our guide there, who's a dear friend of ours, he always says, now all of you are from Ephraim. He calls it Ephraim because that's how they say it. And he says, then I know you're from Ephraim. And then he, he says, you are you are Egyptian. You are the children of Joseph. And he said, welcome home. He always welcomes us home to Egypt. But what is this thing about being the firstborn? What is this? What kind of responsibilities devolve upon the shoulders of Ephraim in the last days? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, when I speak to my seminary institute students about their patriarchal blessings, they said, well, uh, yeah, they're mostly from Ephraim. I've always seen other tribes, but Ephraim is clearly the dominant tribe. And you go into our temples and you see it's resting on the backs of, of 12 oxen and they're traditionally used to, these are symbols of the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, uh, it's actually the symbol of the tribe of Joseph, the ox is, the lion is the tribe of Judah, you know, the Dan is the eagle and the snake, and they all have different tribal ensigns, but it's the oxen on, because Ephraim is the leading tribe of the house of Israel of the last days. It rests upon the backs as the servants of, so the birthright son is one who has uh, the double portion. That's typically how it's referred to as the double portion of of the father's inheritance. And so one portion for himself and his, his family, but the other portion is used to take care of the rest of the house, the unmarried sisters and, and his mother who still lives and to take care of the, uh, of the family. Uh, there, it comes while there's greater wealth, there's also greater responsibility and greater blessings associated with being the birthright. And, and as it was anciently, you know, with the house of Judah being the line of kings, in the last days, it's the tribe of Ephraim. Now, the Jewish people have great prophecies about them in the last days, but the house of Ephraim is the one that is designed to, to come in to, to gather Israel, to be the first tribe to start the gathering of Israel. In fact, I think of uh, Ephraim's patriarchal blessing in Deuteronomy 33. Let me read it to you just quickly. It's verse 17. Well, it's actually verses 13 through 17, but let me just read the relevant portion for here is Joseph's glory or Ephraim's glory is like the firstling of his bullock. There's that the, uh, the the birthright son or the birthright tribe is the first. And his horns, horns are idiomatic of power. His horns are like those of a wild ox. It says unicorn in the King James, but it's like a, a wild ox, that ox is a servant. Now look what he does. And I think we're seeing the fulfillment of this in the last days with President, beginning with President Hinckley up through President Nelson now is, is the tribe of Ephraim or Joseph with the horns of the wild ox, that's power. With them, he shall push the people together this is an interesting construct, to the ends of the earth. And that's an interesting thing that uh, that Jews have a hard time dealing with is because the purpose of gathering together, gathering Israel is always to, uh, for the temple. And the temple is always in Jerusalem, Yerushalayim. But 
But in the last days, Ephraim is going to be pushing people to the ends of the earth. That can only mean one thing, that that the place of the covenant is around the ends of the earth. And so, uh, and so we're seeing this with temples, with President Nelson and how many temples he's announcing that he's bringing the covenant to the ends of the earth. In the last days, the house of Ephraim, with the double portion and leading tribe of the house of Israel, is doing exactly that, gathering Israel from the four quarters of the earth in the ends of the earth, among all nations, kindreds, tribes, and people. It's a beautiful blessing. That's so exciting. And I think about that because sometimes we'll ask our our tour groups or our institute students, you know, what is the purpose of the gathering? And people say, oh, so we can be together, so we can form Zion, so we can um, have a community. So we, there's all kinds of answers that come, but seldom is the answer just right at the fore that we gather to build a temple. We gather to have that temple in the center of our lives, and that temple is the symbol of Jesus Christ and of his atoning sacrifice, and it is only through that that we can come back into the presence of the Father. And so, and I do love what you said about, uh, you know, President Nelson announcing so many temples. We know that President Hinckley in his time uh, announced, I believe it was 86 temples, and that was in 12 about 12 years of administration and President Nelson in just over four years has announced a hundred temples. And so the, the work is really, really accelerating. And, and I love you're putting this in perspective with the horns of Ephraim, pushing them to the ends of the earth and to these temples, to these holy places. It's a beautiful day to live. It truly is. You know, our friend um, Boris Leostrin, who is the state president in St. Petersburg, says they have every tribe in their stake and um, and they are ready and eager to do their part as well. So isn't it wonderful that all the all the tribes are going to be called upon to do their to do their part to bring in the glorious day that Jeremiah is describing here. When, when the Lord is with us, when all things that have are painful are forgiven and lost, gone, we are, we've entered a new a new era. And I think that's just a, a, a beautiful idea from Jeremiah. Maureen and Patrick, I think that something that comes to mind as we're talking about this, we tend to think, how can we be like the Lord? How can we be perfected? in him, how do we go through this process that we've been talking about? And it reminds me of this, uh, in our notes, we've got this Be Perfect Eventually by Jeffrey R. Holland. I just want to read a little piece of this. My brothers and sisters, except for Jesus, there have been no flawless performances on this earthly journey we are pursuing. So while in mortality, let's strive for steady improvement without obsessing over what behavioral scientists call toxic perfectionism. We should avoid that latter excessive expectation of ourselves and of others, and I might add, of those who are called to serve in the church, which for Latter-day Saints means everyone, for we are all called to serve somewhere. In that regard, Leo Tolstoy wrote once of a priest who was criticized by one of his congregants for not living as resolutely as he should, the critic concluding, that the principles the erring preacher taught must therefore also be erroneous. In response to that criticism, the priest says, Look at my life now and compare it to my former life. You will see that I am trying to live out the truth I proclaim. 
Unable to live up to the high ideals he taught, the priest admits he has failed, but he cries, Attack me if you wish. I do this myself, but don't attack the path I follow. If I know the way home, but am walking along it drunkenly, is it any less the right way simply because I am staggering from side to side? Do not gleefully shout, look at him, there he is crawling into a bog. No, do not gloat, but give your help to anyone trying to walk the road back to God. Brothers and sisters, Elder Holland continues, every one of us aspires to a more Christ-like life than we often succeed in living. If we admit that honestly and are trying to improve, we are not hypocrites, we are human. May we refuse to let our own mortal follies and the inevitable shortcomings of even the best men and women around us make us cynical about the truths of the gospel, the truthfulness of the church, our hope for the future, or the possibility of godliness. If we persevere, then somewhere in eternity our refinement will be finished and complete, which is the New Testament meaning of perfection. And I do love the way the Lord moves us along. Sometimes we look back and we think, I really am not the same person I was. I really do have more strength than I did. I really can feel the light more often than I did. And we don't even realize maybe when it happened. But I I do know that this temple at the center plays a key role in it. And the more we attend that temple and help the dead and partake of those ordinances, the more we do feel miracles happening inside of ourselves too. I trust the process that the Lord has us on, and I trust his ability to bring us to that place of joy that is described here in these last chapters of Jeremiah. That's beautiful. I, I mean, I, I mean that sincerely, Maureen. I love your, the fact your affirmations of trust on that. I, um, I think of, uh, Lamentations. In fact, the book of Lamentations, where the first two Lamentations are really quite serious. But then you look at the, this, this bright coruscation of hope that just flashes in chapter 3, um, verse 22. Start, it starts in verse 22, where coming from one, uh, the writer of Lamentations, coming from one who is lamenting the loss of everything, the temple, the city, and everything else, and, and we have sinned, we have prostituted ourselves, and yet you see this hope, this seed of hope. Uh, so Lamentations 3, it, verse 22, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. I, No matter how dark it is, I, I, I love this, this flash in Lamentations that, that all is not lost. Uh, the Lord's, If the Lord is a God of justice, that means his covenant is he will bring us back. He will enable us to rise. He will bring us light and the the sun will rise every single morning. And he is the morning star. It's a beautiful passage in Lamentations. And I love verse 26 that you almost read there in chapter three. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. That just gives me a lot of hope. It's a beautiful passage. Uh, In fact, uh, I was thinking of a statement from uh, the prophet Joseph, we're talking about temple there, and the prophet Joseph Smith in 
in uh, uh, 1839 in Commerce, Illinois, he, he gave this sermon right preceding the idea of, of the coming Nauvoo Temple. And he referenced Jeremiah's prophecy of the last days here, where he says this, God hath not revealed anything to Joseph, but what he will make known unto the twelve, and even the least saint may know all things as fast as he is able to bear them. For the day must come when no man need say to his neighbor, Know ye the Lord, for all shall know him from the least to the greatest. And he's directly referencing Jeremiah right there, Jeremiah 31, verse 34, where where Joseph the prophet knows that we are living in the day that Jeremiah is looking forward to, that all of us can know him, have this intimate oneness with him from the least of us to the greatest. What a beautiful thing. That's all for today. Thank you so much for joining us. And thanks to Patrick Dane, who has joined with us today in this wonderful discussion about Jeremiah and these times and our times and how they apply to us. Next week's lesson will be Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3, chapters 33 through 34, 36 through 37, and 47 in a lesson entitled, A New Spirit Will I Put Within You. Thanks as always to Paul Cardall for the music which accompanies this podcast, and also a special thanks to our producer, Michaela Proctor Hutchins. Have a wonderful week, and see you next time.